0: it's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at christianquestions.com. Today's topic is, do we really have free will? Coming up in this episode, human free will is a tricky thing. We can have it and exercise it all we want, but we need to remember that free will isn't free. There are always consequences or results that need to be accepted. Is there some ultimate reason we have free will, and does God ever interfere with it? Now,
1: here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. Grateful to be here. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Hi, Rick and Jonathan. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode?
0: Joshua 24, 15. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.
1: Outside of some deeply philosophical debates, the idea of human beings having inherent freedom of choice seems to be a generally accepted premise. Free will makes us special. The the capacity of conscious choice establishes humankind in a unique category in relation to the rest of life on our planet. When human beings interfere with the freedom of choice of other humans, the consequences are are usually dark. We end up with things like oppression and slavery and dictatorships. So does God ever interfere with our freedom of choice? Does he ever override an individual's chosen pathway and force them onto another one? Some scriptures seem to indicate that this is so, but is it? How do we understand the value and application of human choice in God's ultimate plan? do we have free will? This is a big question and there's a lot to talk about. So let's dive right into this uh, and, and to get started by clarifying what makes having free will such a privilege. Julie, let's get started. What do we have?
2: We're going to take a look at uh, an article called Free Will and Neuroscience, From Explaining Freedom Away to New Ways of Operationalizing and Measuring It by Andrea Lavaza. We're going to quote from that, and it says free will can be defined by three conditions. The first one is the ability to do otherwise. This is an intuitive concept. To be free, one has to have at least two alternatives or courses of action between which to choose.
0: We can't have free will if we don't have choice. We have to have at least two options.
2: Exactly. So the second condition that this article talked about was the control over one's choices. So the person who acts must be the same who decides what to do. To be granted free will, one must be the author of one's choices without the interference of people and of mechanisms outside of one's reach. This is what we call agency. That is being and feeling like the owner of one's decisions and actions.
0: Own the choice. The ability to own our choices is to not have others tell us what to do.
2: And the third condition this article discussed was called the responsiveness to reasons. So a decision can't be free if it's the effect of a random choice, but it must be rationally motivated. So if I roll a dice to decide whom to marry, my choice cannot be said to be free, even though I will freely choose to say I do.
0: That free choice may exist, but the decision was made randomly. We have to reason and have input to make a decision, not roll the dice.
2: Okay, so we've got these three conditions. Ability to do otherwise, control over one's choices, responsiveness to reasons. Based on these three criteria, can we say that God has free will?
1: All right, so you start with a question that just goes beyond us. Does God have free will? You know, I I, I personally See, think that I, I can't see how he doesn't, but here's the thing. It may be foolish, a foolish exercise for us to determine whether God Almighty has free will because his nature and power and existence are so far beyond our comprehensive abilities. He's so much bigger and comes from outside of the universe. Who are we to say what he has and doesn't have? So instead of looking at the question, does God have free will? Let's delve into this. Let's instead try and determine what we know about God's will. We're going to suggest three scripturally supported points to define God's will. I'm going to use these points throughout the podcast to build a case for free will in humanity. Julie, what's the first point?
2: God's will is perfect.
1: So it is both complete and flawless. Perfect can mean simply complete, and perfect can mean flawless It's both. It's both complete and flawless. James, Jonathan James 1, 17 to 18.
0: Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be kind of a first fruits among his creatures. Rick and Julie, another way to say this is God is stable and dependable.
1: Yeah. There, there's this flawlessness to his will, this completeness, and you want something when something is that big to be stable and dependable. So God's will is perfect. That's the first point. What's the next point?
2: Uh, God's will is committed.
1: So all of God's objectives are specific and harmonious, and his will is dedicated to their fruition. The objectives are specific and harmonious, and he's dedicated to their coming to be. And we can see this well shown to us in Daniel chapter 2, verses 19 to 23.
0: Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise men and knowledge to the men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you for you have made known to us the king's matter.
2: And I'd like to add one more condition about free will as it relates to God. He's not constrained by external limitations. He established the natural laws of nature, the concept of time, but we don't believe he's constrained by any of it. His choices aren't controlled by anything or anyone other than what he himself has determined, such as when he promised that he would never lie in Titus 1-2 and Hebrews six eighteen and other texts. But because he has such power, think about it, what a... Wonderful thing for his creatures that he's benevolent and gracious and has mercy because having a vicious, sadistic, eternal overlord would be hopeless for his creatures.
1: Yeah, it it would be, and that's why we're looking at this saying, let's try to understand God's will instead of asking questions about it. Let's just see what he reveals to us because it tells us a lot about ourselves, and it's all really, really, really very powerfully good Good news. So we've got those first two points that God's will is perfect, God's will is committed. Julie, what's the third point?
2: A God's will is time tested.
1: So it has proven its unbreakable nature, just like you were saying, over all of the history of humanity. Uh, and let's go to James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18.
0: But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed, whose fruit is righteousness, is sown in
1: peace by those who make peace. So these are the things we know about God and His will. Pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy. I mean, everything good comes from above. That's what James is telling us. So we've got this time-tested testimony that whatever pours out from God Almighty— is always higher and better than anything we could ever fabricate or imagine in our own human minds. This is what God's will is about. So we've got these three points that really helps us see this. So now let's take a look at this time-tested quality of God's will, because it was outlined in Scripture, and it was told to us right from the start. And we're just going to touch lightly on this. There's so much to this aspect. Genesis 3, 15 to start with
0: and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel.
2: This is God warning Satan after Satan successfully tempted Adam and Eve. And if you examine it closely, there's this wonderful foreshadowing of hope because it indicates right here at the beginning, what would happen in God's plan for humanity. Eventually through the generations, From the seed of Eve would come the Messiah. And while Satan would, as it says, bruise him on the heel, meaning that temporary victory of crucifixion, taking Jesus off the scene, he, Christ, would eventually bruise Satan on the head, a death blow. The Amplified Bible says, and you shall only bruise his heel. So sin enters with these immediate consequences, but also immediate, counteracting hope.
1: And the hope was not obvious at that point. It was very, very much hidden. But again, this is the time-tested quality of God's will being shown to us. So now, to build on that hope, you, you fast forward a few thousand years, and Jesus is on the scene, and he proclaims his role as the key factor in fulfilling God's will over time. And he does that in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. These are verses that a lot of people know.
0: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him.
1: So, what we're seeing is God's plan unfolding, and Jesus himself saying, I'm not here to judge, I'm here to save. Here to save who? Here to save the world. God's time tested plan unfolded in the garden with that hint. And when Jesus comes to say, I'm here, it's showing how it's coming to fruition. And now we go a step further, and Jesus also tells us of the coming results of God's will and action. We're going to go to John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32.
0: Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself.
1: So now this this is a... (laughs) I love this scripture, because this the glory of this scripture is immeasurable, because it says, now the ruler of this world is cast out. And the next statement Jesus talks about is his crucifixion. You say, wait, how can that be the way the ruler of this world is cast out? Because that was the sacrifice, that was the price that had to be paid to throw Satan out forever. So when you go to that Genesis scripture, and Julie, you explain, he shall, you shall, uh, he shall bruise you on the head, the death blow to Satan— Jesus' sacrifice was the death blow initiated. We can see God's time-tested will unfolding over generations and generations and thousands and thousands of years. So we're looking at God's will, and again, his will is perfect, it's committed, and it's time-tested. So let's take a look now, let's unlock the value of free will. Jonathan, what do we have?
0: It's profoundly encouraging to know that God's will as expressed to humanity through the Bible is rock solid, dedicated, and unwavering. Whether we argue for or against God having free will, we can all know that his will is unbreakably focused on giving and supporting life through justice, love, and mercy.
1: And if that's not comforting, folks, I don't know what is. That's just a great promise from the great creator. So, To review the power and direction of God's will is inspiring, and it helps us understand the reasons for His creations.
0: With God's will in place to securely rely upon, what can we now uncover about humanity's free will?
1: Seeing just a glimpse of the grandeur of God's will becomes a formidable foundation for comprehending the essence of our own will. If we know who created us and why we were created, we can certainly begin to solve the question of free will. Now, these big questions are plainly answered, but we have to go back to the beginning. We have to go back to Genesis. So now we're going to focus on uh, human will. And what does that mean? We We need the foundation of God's understanding God's will to understand human will. Here's why. When it came time... For humanity's creation, there were specific details and purposes revealed. Listen carefully to these next verses, or this next verse, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26.
0: Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth.
1: So, Jonathan, we got a couple of words here we wanted to find to be clear. we got, let us make man in our image, and then after our likeness. What does the word image mean?
0: Well, it's interesting, Rick. Uh, There are a lot of meanings to this word, but the one that deals with this verse most resembles this. It's resemblance, hence a representative figure. Okay. And the word likeness uh, means resemblance, model, uh, or shape.
1: So we've got this idea of resemblance, a representative figure. When it says we're created in the image of God, it's not that we're created to look like him, but we're created to act like him. That's what this is saying about humankind. Humanity was created to be God's representatives on earth, to have his kind of authority and rule over the physical creation and over the planet. And that's why he said, let them rule over, let them have dominion over all of these things, because that's what I, God, do. And I want humanity to be my representative in that. So That's the way humanity is created. This is important in establishing humanity's free will. God would introduce humanity to their responsibility in an environment, and it was the Garden of Eden, in an environment conducive for them to see and maintain God's way of doing things. Now, this environment had everything, and I mean everything they needed, and it was all presented in a perfect package. Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. The Lord
0: God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life also was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, Rick and Julie, this is a model of a perfect earth. Work with it, maintain it, and expand it. They could take control and make the rest of the earth a garden. Wherever the tree of life was, it would have been wherever it was needed to maintain the billions
1: of lives. So that was the picture-perfect approach. But of course, God's plan had other things that it knew had to have happen. But that was the capacity that was put before them. The capacity was perfect, and it was complete. And now the test of obedience is put into play. The rules were straightforward— And the consequences of obedience and disobedience were plainly disclosed. This is important because this is about understanding humanity's free will. Let's go to Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17.
0: Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die.
2: So here we see the external constraints were placed on Adam. Adam. Humans would require food for life and more specifically, apparently access to those specific trees in the garden. And as a divine being, God has life within himself. He's not reliant on anything or anyone for his existence. And we don't believe that he's bound by constraints like natural laws or time But here in the Garden of Eden, human free will is about to be tested because now there's suddenly a choice that never existed before.
1: Yeah, he says, here it is. Here's everything. And here's this one tree, the the tree of the knowledge of good good and evil. That one you don't eat from. That one, just leave that one alone. So now there is an inherent choice because God said, you can do anything you want, but, and that but makes you have to think about things you normally wouldn't have had to think about.
2: And they probably never even noticed that tree until God <laughs> said, yeah, yeah, don't eat that one. Yeah. What? And then every time <laughs> well, you walk that
1: by, looks- that's right, you're looking at it and say, wow. <laughs> so so you, you've got this happening. So now the end result, let, let's follow through, again, establishing free will. The end result of God's plan was to have human free will work within, within the same parameters as God's own will for we're created in his image. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we defined what God's will looks like, and as God put humanity in charge of the earth, we can understand that we're supposed to have the same kind of qualities in our own human will. So let's go back through those qualities and then of God and then define them in relation to humanity. Julie, what was that first quality? It was that God's will is perfect.
0: And God's plan is for the human will to learn perfection.
2: And God's will is committed.
0: And God's plan is for the human will to learn true godly contentment.
2: And God's will is time-tested.
0: God's plan is for the human will to be provable and faithful over time.
1: So God's will is perfect, committed, and time-tested. The human will had to be developed to be like God's will. This is why obedience had to come into play, because free will had to be tested, and you can't test it without choices. Next, the use of free will becomes evident. We're following through in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6.
0: Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die.
1: So Eve, when she's speaking to Lucifer in the guise of a serpent, understands, knows the rules and the consequences. She knows them because she recites them back to him. Oh, no, no, we're not supposed to do this. Don't eat of it or you will die. So she understands it and she verbalizes that understanding. But here's what happens. Next, Satan introduced a second choice. Uh Aha, here comes the, the, the free will test and suggested an alternative ending. Here's what he said. Verse four.
0: The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil.
2: And interestingly, this corresponds to those three conditions of free will we discussed from that article we mentioned. That first element of free will is the ability to do otherwise.
1: So Satan gave her the ability to do otherwise. Now, the ability was there before, but probably not well considered. But when Satan introduces an alternative, an alternative reason and an alternative ending— Now this ability to do otherwise grows and becomes first and foremost in her own mind. So what happens next? Now that this ability is right before her eyes, verse 6.
0: When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And now we've got the second element of free will, which is control over one's choices. She's starting to think it over.
1: And, you know, you know what she's doing in, in, a lot of times, when people try to make hard decisions, they they put things in columns. You know, what are the pros in one column, and what are the cons in another column. And 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 this is what she's doing. She's looking at this tree and it's like, mm, you know, this is this is this looks like it's good food, uh, and, and it certainly is beautiful. And and it's going to make me wise. I mean, th- look at all of these. Let me just write these. I'm, I'm exaggerating, okay? But you know, let me just write these down on a list. This is all this good stuff. It's it's lively and it's good, and it's going to make me better. And and why wouldn't it? And she's got all these reasons. But on the other side of the ledger, you have a very simple stated fact, and that is God said no. So you can create a list with all the reasons you want, but they don't weigh like God said no but she had this and she's playing through this and it's in her mind and she's following the emotion of the suggestion and the alternative ending. So what happens? Let's finish up verse six.
0: She took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate.
1: So
2: the third element is responsiveness to reasons.
1: She responded. She responded to all of these reasons and followed through, and Eve, and of course she gave the fruit to Adam, who just ate. Okay, so he made a choice as well. Eve and Adam now clearly had their choice. They weighed their options from their own perspective, and they decided.
0: Rick, if we think about it, how much experience did Eve have? Not much, but Lucifer no, he's another story.
1: You know, and, and that's, a, that's an important point, because Lucifer is another story. He had who knows how many eons of time as he developed this thought in his mind, this choice of his own, I will be like the Most High. And here is how he is attempting to subvert God's authority by asserting his own. So he had tons of time, and you're right, Eve didn't have a lot of experience, but she still knew better and she still made a choice. So this is, this is showing us free will, and it's showing us a, a very bad consequence here. And here's the thing, all free will has either results or consequences. When our free will is exercised, and we've chosen an ultimate good, the result will be harmony with that ultimate good and its source, even though it may result in hardship. So it might be tough at the beginning, but if you choose in line with ultimate good, there's ultimate blessing. When our free will is exercised and we've chosen against ultimate good, the results will put us out of harmony with God. And you know what happens when we get put out of harmony with God? We seek to be hidden from him. That's exactly what happened in the garden to Adam and Eve. Let's go to Genesis 3, verses 8 to 13.
0: They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked?
2: Yeah, wait, how did they know they were naked?
0: Wait, let me continue. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat?
2: Oh, right. Once they ate from that tree of knowledge of good and evil, they would see the world differently. That's so sad because their innocence was gone. You know, here they're starting to experience the immediate consequences of their disobedience.
0: And now to the blame game. Verse 12. The man (laughs) said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate.
2: This part's so tragic that it's funny because Adam was in this really bad place. Instead of taking responsibility, he blames God. You know, after all, you gave me the woman. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not the best response, but it is a good lesson for us, though.
1: It, it is, and don't forget the woman said, you know, that... Uh, it's, well,
2: the woman has a name. <laughs> <that the> woman- <laughs> he didn't even mention her name.
1: <laughs> so, so, you know, but, you know, they, they're all kind of trying to point the finger, okay? And and here's the thing. When we exercise our free will, um, it, and, and it results in an ungodly outcome, we often try and seek cover. And the way we often do this is deflecting the blame away from our choice and towards the influences that we chose to heed. We don't want it on us, so we try to point to the outside influences.
2: Yeah, and regardless of where they pointed their fingers, they made the choice to listen to something other than God's will. And we can run but can't hide because God can always find us.
1: So in this exercise in Genesis, what we're seeing is the development and the use of human free will. And of course, it didn't come out great, But it shows us the lessons that God put in place on purpose so that humanity would eventually learn the value of their free will having been created in God's image. So, Jonathan, unlocking the value of free will, what do we have?
0: Humanity was created in God's image. Our mental framework was designed to have dominion as God does and to also have an unbreakable righteous will as he does. God created us with free will. Ultimately, this will result in the development of an unwavering righteousness where the will of mankind will be aligned with the will of God by their own choice. The commitment of this will needs to be proclaimed and needs to stand the test of time so that we will ultimately live in the image of God as we were meant to do.
1: So there's a lot to having free will. There's a lot to God's plan of giving humanity free will and then putting it to the test. God really does know what he's doing. So God's plan from the very start was built entirely around free will. makes you stop and think about what you think.
0: Has God ever taken anyone's free will away from them for the
1: purpose of God's will being done? This is a big question, and there's several scriptures that seem to indicate this did happen. What we need to do with a question like this is first rely on the importance of our human free will that God himself established from the start. We need to remember unequivocally, God gave humanity free will for a reason, for the testing so the obedience could be learned so we could be in line with him. So now we're going to examine the ideas. Did God ever take that away from anybody?
2: There's a common question. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart and thereby take his free will away? No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That was easy. (laughs) Uh, On to the next
0: question. (laughs) Prove it, Jonathan. Prove it. Let's read Exodus 7, 12 through 14. And this is the King James Version. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearken not unto them, as the Lord had said. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, he refuseth to let the people go. And what does this word hardened, Pharaoh's heart, mean? The word hardened means to fasten upon, hence to seize, to be strong.
2: And though the King James Version here says that God hardened his heart, other translations say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And in fact, there's 19 Old Testament scriptures that talk about Pharaoh's heart and that he hardened his own heart or God hardened it or some give no cause at all. And even the Apostle Paul refers to this famous heart in Romans nine seventeen to 18. We're going to show all these in this week's CQ Rewind show notes that are available every week for free on ChristianQuestions.com and our convenient Christian Questions app. And you can also text one word CQ Rewind to the number 22828. That's 22828. And we'll go ahead and meet, email you the show notes every week.
1: So the question is, did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, what this verse showed us, that you know, Pharaoh hardened in his own heart, it establishes the pattern of Pharaoh and his responses. And this is an important pattern to understand. This pattern of Pharaoh's responses of his hard heart is repeated many times between he and Moses. Pharaoh continually hardened his own heart. But there, here we're going to cite one of many scriptures that say God did so as well. This scripture actually says God hardened his heart. And let's look at Exodus 9.12. This is one of several examples. And the Lord
0: hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses.
1: So what we've got here is this sense that it says very plainly, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it's that same word that Jonathan, that that you you translated before, to fasten upon, hence to Caesar, to be strong. Now, interesting comment from the R-V-I-C translation. R-V-I-C means revised version, improved and corrected. Jonathan, what's that comment? When the Lord
0: creates circumstances in which Pharaoh jumps at the temptation, Hebrew expression can say the Lord did it, even though the guilty guilt lay with Pharaoh.
1: So that's an important concept because the Hebrew language works in that way. And we need to understand that it can say that God did it, but the guilt lay with him. So l- let's, let's pull some things together on this piece. Pharaoh, remember you're talking about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Well, Pharaoh was naturally inclined to be stubborn. He had been raised to think of himself as a god, not a man, but as a god from earliest childhood, so he had tremendous pride.
0: God put him in the right place at the right time to accomplish his purposes, using Pharaoh's free will decision to obstruct the Jews
1: leaving Egypt.
2: And God certainly allowed the circumstances that forced Pharaoh into making a decision. So in that sense, we could say God hardened his heart.
1: So you can see this developing, but you can see it's Pharaoh in the limelight of the hardening. That's what we're we're focusing on here. God took Pharaoh's natural propensity. And he used that natural propensity as a tool. God could advance his plan according to characters that people already possess. So whatever your character is, God can take it and use whatever it is without, without tampering with it to accomplish his purposes.
0: Pharaoh may have thought he was the supreme ruler in Egypt. But God maneuvered Pharaoh into his position and used him as only one of the many tools for the ultimate working of God's plan, which will ultimately work out for the good of everyone.
2: And because Pharaoh saw himself as above everyone else, because remember, he was he thought of himself a deity, he wasn't going to take the word, will, threat, or suggestion of a lowly human. And God used that trait of Pharaoh to glorify God's own name. And it's interesting how when you study this deeper, it seems as though the 10 plagues specifically were aimed at the many gods of Egypt. Each plague corresponds to a specific Egyptian god.
1: And so you can see that God is really working on Pharaoh from who Pharaoh is. And he is challenging Pharaoh all along the way because Pharaoh sees himself as God. And God is basically saying, uh, think again, I am almighty God. God is basically saying, I know who you are. I know how I how you think and mm-hmm. I can use all of that to my own honor and glory because my plan is the plan.
2: And think about it if God violated his free will Pharaoh would have just had God would have just let Pharaoh had the people go. Yeah. <laughs> Why go through all this? It was Pharaoh who chose to resist the will of God and not let the Israelites leave Egypt and had he obeyed it would have indicated a heart that could be influenced for good. So when God sent the plagues to force him to let Israel leave, God created the circumstances that led to Pharaoh's reaction. But it was Pharaoh, of course, who refused God's will and chose to respond with a hard heart. And I think, Rick and Jonathan, this is a really good lesson for us because when we experience hard trials, we might react with bitterness and anger. And if we persist in that response, we too can develop a Pharaoh heart one that stubbornly refuses to learn from our experiences and becomes bitter. So here's a wise saying, a tender heart doesn't respond in anger, but contemplates things more deeply and chooses to trust in God.
1: So when we look at Pharaoh and his heart, no, God didn't harden his heart. He just used the hard heart of Pharaoh and challenged it. And Pharaoh further dug in and God challenged it. And Pharaoh further dug in that's what happened there. It was Pharaoh's choice all along. He had free will, and God didn't tamper with it, but he used it for God's own devices. So our our next example is about King Saul in the Old Testament.
0: We recommend both adults and children watch the two-minute animated CQ Kids video called, Who Was King Saul? Parts 1 and 2, to just familiarize yourself with what happened We have about 100 of these short question and answer videos at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube.
2: So for our next example, we're gonna drop in the time of the Old Testament when the prophet Samuel anoints young David as the prospective king of Israel. It would be many years before King Saul's rule would come to an end and David would eventually be king. But our question is, did God angrily send an evil spirit to King Saul? Did God interfere with Saul's ability to think, choose, and act for himself? Let's go to 1 Samuel sixteen thirteen to 15.
0: Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you.
2: So did God really send a demon to possess Saul and force him to try to kill David? So here's something that I found was really interesting. There's no Hebrew word that means what we would think of in English as a demon inhabiting a human body. So from false religions around them, they knew of mythological creatures and false gods. But the Hebrew word for spirit here, and it's Strong's uh, number 7307, it includes the thought of breath wind or spirit, like that which breathes quickly in animation or agitation. It's the case of like temper, anger, animation, troubled, bitter, discontented, spirit as in the seat of emotion, like a troubled spirit. So we don't think that this is demon possession, but more a mental condition of Saul. So now our question becomes, did God give Saul a mental illness?
1: All right. and, and that would be a legitimate question by the way the scripture is written. An evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. It's like, whoa, you know, he set you off kilter. You know, God is messing with your brain. That's what, right. that's what you, you look at that scripture and that's what it sounds like. But see, to understand this, we need to first understand what God did for Saul to prepare him to be king. This is enormous. To understand a difficult scripture, you've got to go back to the original context. You have to see how you got there. So let's go back to what God did for Saul before he becomes king to prepare him. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 9.
0: Then it happened, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all those signs came about on that day.
2: So why would God change his heart like this? Well, we got to go back and look at the context. The context of this was that King Saul was instructed very specifically to slay all of the enemy, the Amalekites, even their animals. But in 1 Samuel 15, in his triumphant procession, Saul comes back into the city and the prophet Samuel says, hey, why am I hearing sounds of sheep and cattle? And wait, I'm seeing these Amalekite slaves. Even the Amalekite king Agog himself is still alive. And there were resulting generations of hatred between these two peoples, and a thousand years later, as a result of this disobedience by King Saul, a descendant named Haman tried to have all the Jews killed, as told in the book of Esther. This was a big error.
1: And, you know, it's a big error. Now, understand, God changed Saul's heart when he was young and was becoming king. This event that we're talking about now uh, is 40 years later, 42 years later, something like that. So this is a long time later. Saul has been king for a long time, and he goes into this disobedience. So next we need to understand the depth of Saul's rebellion and the consequence of God abandoning him. Saul, Julie, as you mentioned, had blatantly disobeyed a command of God and then told Samuel, well, the people were at fault. The people were the ones who wanted to keep the cattle. It wasn't me. Now, who's king? Who's the decision maker here? So, and Samuel sees right through this. And here's what Samuel says. Let's pay close attention to what Samuel says, then compare it with what had happened previously. First Samuel 15, 22 to 23.
0: Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is an iniquity of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king.
1: Here's free will. You have rejected the word of the Lord. Here's the consequence. You are now rejected from being king. Saul had this free will. Uh, expressed at this point, and he had worked his way up to this kind of rebellion. And it was deep, and it was serious, and Samuel called him out unequivocally and said, you didn't just make a mistake, this is the last straw. You are now rejected by God. God ceased to keep Saul's heart intact. Remember it said at the beginning, before he's king, God changed his heart. God touched his heart. God gave him the preparation, God's grace, so he could rule well. And now he ceased keeping Saul's heart intact and allowed his rebellion to bring upon him, upon Saul, the results of divination. What are the results of divination? There's sadness and emptiness and godlessness. That's what he ended up with.
2: Mm -hmm. So let's directly answer the original question. In 1 Samuel 16, 14, and 15, it said, An evil spirit from the Lord terrorized Saul. What exactly does this mean?
1: I think what this means is that God removed the changing of his heart and the protection and God's grace and allowed Saul's influences, his natural influences, to override. Because spirit is, means really does mean influence. It's an unseen power. And the unseen power of Saul's own heart needed God's grace. And when God's grace was taken, what flooded back was his natural propensity, which incidentally was overriding God's grace for many, many years now, this was just the, 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 the final straw. And when God removed that, it was over. Saul went mad all on his own. And so when it says it comes from God, it's because God removed the dam that held the water back. That's really So what God had
2: been suppressing yes, that absolutely. propensity towards him. In Young's literal translation, it says, a spirit of sadness from Jehovah terrified him. Yeah. And that makes, you know, we make ourselves vulnerable when we step outside the protection of God. Okay, let's move on to our next tough example. Did God make Herod and Pilate leave Jesus to be crucified and thereby mess with their free will? Here's the context. In the book of Acts, Peter and John were arrested for preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. They get released from prison. They lift their voices in prayer in front of a group of believers. And we're going to drop in on that prayer right after they quote Old Testament prophecies about Jesus's crucifixion in Acts 4, 27 and 28.
0: For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur.
2: There you go. Were Herod and Pilate just puppets in all this? Clearly the prophecy had to come true, so did God force it to come true, thereby violating their free will
1: again, a, a very good question. And when you look at the way the Scripture reads, you think, huh, it sounds like they were actual puppets in the process. It does sound like that. So first, first, this is describing the fulfillment of a prophecy, like you said. The prophecy was there, therefore it had to control uh, come true. But see, it's not describing any kind of personal predestination. Now, why do we say that? Well, one specific principle of prophecy shows us that the actions of the people, whomever are on the scene, will be in accordance with the unfolding of God's will at that time. What do we mean by that? Let's look at another example of fulfilled prophecy. Luke chapter 19 verses 37 to 40.
0: As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, The whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones
1: will cry out. What was Je- did Jesus mean? The literal stone's going to have these little mouths saying, eh, "Praise God, praise God." He, that's not, of course, not. No, 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 no. But what he's saying is, it had to be this way. So the people are doing what they feel they should do because God knew the time for that to happen. And that's the way prophecy unfolds. He uses the free will of mankind to accomplish his purposes. He knows what the will of the the people were going to be. He knows that Jesus' example to them for this three and a half years was coming to a culmination, and they were ecstatic over it. And so he knew that that would happen. He didn't manipulate the crowd. He didn't manipulate Herod. He didn't manipulate uh, a pilot. He used who they were to accomplish his will. That's the way prophecy unfolds.
2: So let's take a look and unlock the value of free will.
0: God's endowment of free will upon humanity is a sacred gift. This does not keep God from reading a heart and using its intentions and desires as tools in his plan. God has done this right from the start, even with the devious
1: heart of Satan. And that's the point. Even with the devious heart of Satan, God took that deviousness and wove it into the accomplishment of his will. See, God knows. He doesn't interfere, but he uses whatever that free will is to bring his will to ultimate fruition. It's actually very inspiring to see this. You know, it is fascinating to see how deeply our free will affects the big picture of life and how God so carefully protects it.
0: Doesn't humanity being born into the inherited sin of Adam undermine any free will we could have?
1: philosophical arguments against human free will stand on a concept called determinism, which we're going to define in a moment. The bottom line question is actually simple. If humanity does not have a choice but to be born sinful, hasn't God's plan doomed them to choices that ultimately lead to failure?
2: Well, in other words, what good is our supposed free will, since no matter what we do, we're going to die anyway?
1: (laughs) Right. Okay. So let's get into this determinism thing, Julie. What what do we have there?
2: Okay. So back to the article that we quoted earlier about free will and neuroscience, it went on to talk about this determinism. And in short, that means that all behavior has a predictable cause. There's internal and external forces over which we have no control. So no matter what you do, the situation's always going to end up like it did. So there really is no choice. And a classic example of that is children with violent parents will in turn become violent parents through observation and imitation. It's all predetermined, and free will, therefore, is an illusion.
1: Wow. Okay, so that's determinism. Free will is an illusion. We're kind of programmed in to just make choices based on the input, and that's kind of where we're going to end up. So let's look at this. Let's look at this determinism, and let's look at free will, and let's put this all in perspective to see God's plan actually really clearly unfold. Let's go back to some historical biblical examples. Before the Great Flood, God saw that the human race was corrupted by fallen angels. We all know that. But he also saw that the human race had made clear choices as to what they were going to follow. This is made very evident in Genesis chapter 6, verses, Jonathan will do verse 5, then verses 8 and 9.
0: Then the Lord God saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of thought of his heart was only evil continually. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God.
1: So you you see the, the, the comparison. Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was evil continually. That's one side of the equation. That's pretty much everybody. And then you have Noah walked with God. That's the other side of the equation. You have free will being shown us, to us there. God gave those individuals opportunity to repent, and they did not. How do we know that? Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5 gives us a hint as to how to understand that.
2: And did not spare the ancient word, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And here, Noah proved that there was a way to live above the fray, just like, you know, we have got choices today to try to live righteously.
1: So, And and the point is that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, which means Noah spoke out. He gave them a different perspective. He gave them something else to look at. He gave them another choice. They just chose not to listen.
2: Right. So let's go back to those three conditions of free will we quoted from the article about free will and neuroscience. They were, one, the ability to do otherwise, two, control over one's choices, and three, responsiveness to reasons.
0: Even though choice existed, does it seem fair? All of humanity is wired to sin. Let's read Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity,
1: and in sin my mother conceived me. See, Jonathan, that's a really good question. Choice existed, but humanity is wired to sin. So it's like, what's the sense? What's the use? Hold this thought. Let's just hold this thought for a moment. Let's develop some things, and we're going to come back around to it in just a few minutes. So hold this thought. Is it fair? Is it few? Because we're we're wired for sin. So what's happening? Why is God doing this? Hang on. Let's go to the context of our theme text as our next example. Joshua, you know, Joshua 24, 15 is our theme scripture. Joshua is recounting God's grace to Israel and their inheritance of the promised land. Now, Joshua is old. He's going to die soon, and he's realizing the power of the people's choices at this point. They've been through all kinds of things. They're in the promised land, and Joshua is again relaying to them their choices. Joshua 24, and Jonathan, this time we'll read verses 14 and then 15.
0: Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.
2: So going back to those qualifications for free will, yes, they had the ability to do otherwise. They had control over their choices. And they had responsiveness to reasons.
1: And their initial response was, oh, no, no, we'll serve the Lord because we know. Now, of course, we know that the nation fluctuated between serving and not serving, and that's a different story. But the fact is, free will was there, and it was present.
2: Right. So going back to determinism, though, where no matter what we do, the end result is going to be the same. Isn't this in some sense true? Since the Bible tells us the end of the story, you know, eventually paradise lost will be paradise found and all that mankind lost in the garden will be restored in the kingdom. God's will will be done and no person or even evil entity like Satan is going to be able to stop that. It's already as good as done. Now we're just playing it out in real time. Do See, we really have a choice? Y-
1: yes, absolutely, positively, do, we do. And, and first of all, you're right about everything you said. God's will will be done, and the plan is perfect, and we have prophecies that show us. So why? So do we have a choice? Absolutely, yeah. because each individual can choose to be a part of that plan or not. Each individual now in this day can choose to do good things, which will help you later to do better things or you can choose to follow your own way, and later it's, it's more difficult. So it's not that each person is already predetermined. Each of us has free will to fit into God's predetermined overall big picture. We choose where we will fit, or we can choose that we don't want to fit at all. It is a human choice that will be revealed in the resurrection.
2: So even though we do not see that the Bible teaches any type of eternal torment— we know that in the resurrection, the decisions that you make today still have consequences. Yes. And you're going to it's going to be harder for you to make amends and be rehabilitated if you are that far degraded in this life.
0: Yes, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Another question. How about this, Rick? Do mental illnesses appear to undermine the concept of free will? You know, for example, people experiencing depression lose control over their emotions.
1: Good question. Yeah, and 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 it is. It's a it's a huge question. And, and my, my, my gut response to that, having had much experience with many individuals who've had many mental issues, uh, from mental illness to anxiety to depression to trauma to PTSD and all of those things, is that you're in those things and you do lose control of things. But inevitably, for the most part, unless it's incredibly, incredibly serious, you still have choices. I could name names. I won't of individuals who I have watched go through incredible trauma and incredible mental illness and come out the other side leading a normal life. How did they do that? Because they choose to attack the issue instead of have the issue cover them over. Yes, it's more difficult, but choice still exists. It's not easy, but it exists and it can lead to goodness if we focus on it and keep ourselves going in that direction. Okay, so now let's look at a choice that's going to lead to eternal life. We're talking about free will, free choices. We talked about Genesis and the flood era. We talked about Joshua and 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 Israel having been in, in, in the promised land. Now let's look at the New Testament. Ephesians chapter two, verses one to two and then four to six about eternal life.
0: And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus.
2: So if we look at those conditions again the ability to do otherwise control over one's choices responsiveness to reasons where do you find all that here in this Ephesians 2 scripture that
1: well it says it says you were dead in your trespasses and sin But God called you, and you responded. You decided to look at the choice. You had the choice to stay where you were or to rise up to a higher level, which meant sacrifice, and do that. And you responded to the understanding of the sacrifice of Jesus. So you elevate yourself by your choices. It's God's grace that does the elevating, but we have to make the choice so his grace has a place to work.
2: So can't we say, though, that God is— Oh, I hate to say this, but it seems like God might be unfair. You know, we talked about Noah's day. Well, though, we had the fallen angels that corrupted everybody except Noah and his family. Then we have Joshua's day, and there was just one chosen nation of Israel, and everybody else was toast. So now during the age of the gospel message that we're living in, a call goes out, but not to everybody. And here Jesus spoke in parables so that people wouldn't understand. How unfair is that?
1: All right. So again, the question is, is it even fair? Hold that thought. Okay, just just (laughs) for another minute, just for another minute. And and the reason we're asking these questions and saying, hold the thought is we're going to put it together. Because once you see the big picture, it's going to be that aha moment that is right around the corner for us right here coming up. Okay, so hang on to that thought. So look, God's will and plan bring a second opportunity for choosing godly righteousness to all sinners. Now, the first opportunity was just cited in the scripture, Jonathan, that you just read. It talked about choosing to follow Jesus here and now. But there's a second opportunity that the scriptures speak about. And we're going to look at that, uh, just touch on that briefly, with Romans chapter 5, verse 18.
0: So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men.
2: So here's a part, part where I think you'd have to say we have no choice, because we had no choice to be born, and we have no choice as to whether or not we want to come back in the resurrection, whether even you're for an atheist, you're going to have that opportunity. God's plan predetermined that all humanity will have a legitimate choice to see righteousness for what it really is, once Satan is bound and they have the opportunity.
1: Okay, so Julie, what you said there at the beginning is, there is no choice here. Folks, That's right. there is no choice here. So we've been talking about all the ways that humanity has choices, all along the way. It's your choice, it's your choice, your choice. And now in the scripture, it says that the condemnation that we were born under, we didn't have a choice for, because we're just all the progeny of Adam, we're, we're his, you know, generations. You don't have a choice. But because Jesus died for Adam and therefore for everybody, we don't have a choice but to accept the grace of his gift, and that will be resurrection. And you don't have a choice. And that's a beautiful non-choice, because we were stuck in sin, and so now we're stuck with the righteousness of Jesus. And I'll tell you, I like being stuck with the righteousness of Jesus. That is not a choice. Now, what we do with it becomes a choice, but its gift is free to everyone. Where does that bring us? Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12.
0: Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Well, on one side note, interestingly, Those who are against our Christian walk in the past are now praising God in the future kingdom. Obviously, they're not burning in hell because they're glorifying God. The other part of this is in the future kingdom, most will want to obey God based on past experiences. They will obey because they want to, not because they have to.
1: And now we go back. Remember when we said at the very beginning, God creates man in his image and after his likeness to have dominion. This is why... You have the experience of evil and darkness and the bad choices. And now that's in the memory bank to be able to call on to say, no, not good ways to go with, not not a good way to, to deal with life. And now we have this resurrection where righteousness prevails and you can rely on the experience to say godliness is the way to go. So now let's look at human will again in relation to God's will, because this is how we need to develop ourselves. What was that first point again? Uh, It was that God's will is
2: perfect.
0: And God's plan is for the human will to learn perfection.
2: And God's will is committed.
0: And God's plan is for the human will to learn true godly commitment.
2: And God's will is time-tested.
0: And God's plan is for the human will to be provable and faithful over time.
2: So is that the answer to how God is fair when it seems to be unfair in all these ways?
1: Exactly, because God's fairness doesn't come out in this world very often, but it does come out in the broad perspective of his plan. And so in our choices, whether we choose good, bad, or indifferent now, God's plan brings righteousness to every human being on an equal basis so they can then choose appropriately, God is ultimately more than fair because it's gracious, that, that it's grace that brings us there. It's love and it's justice and it's wisdom that brings us there. He is more than fair. This is a beautiful way to look at the purpose for free will. It's so that we can ultimately learn from the bad and honor the good for all of eternity.
2: So And be like God and the way he intended us to be.
1: Exactly. He intended this for us. He gave us free will so we could choose him. And how much better is something when it's your choice than than when you're forced to do it? Think about that. Jonathan, let's wrap this up. Unlocking the value of free will, what do we have?
0: The free will that humanity now has is a gift from God. It now teaches the sinful world the power of choice and the harsh consequences of sin. Because Jesus, Jesus ransomed everyone from Adam's sin, all of humankind will be resurrected. They will learn how this power of choice can bring the eternal results of godly righteousness. Humanity's free will brings God glory.
1: And that's the bottom line. Our free will is there to bring God's glory. Folks, when we talk about human free will, We get stuck in talking about it in terms of the world today, in terms of the sinfulness of sin, in terms of the difficulties that we all face, in terms of the unfairness of this world. Be assured that God's plan gives us this as an experience so later on and for eternity, we can go back to this short period of time and say, I remember that. And now I can choose rightly. I can choose in a godly way. And I can choose to praise, honor, and God, the creator, because he created us to have dominion over the earth in an eternal way. Now, the true church, they go to heaven. That's a different reward. But for the vast majority of the world, it's all about living here on earth according to their free will and free choice to serve a God who ultimately loves them and a Lord Jesus who died for them so you could have that choice. Free will is a gift. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions and your favorite podcast channels such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us, review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week... How do we keep Christmas about Jesus? Practical question. Talk to you next week.